Before we get started, I just want to say for the record that the next two stories I'm about to tell you are probably my two favorites from the whole podcast series so far. So enjoy. The city of Delhi in India has an incredible sound. More than 25 million people live here. It's a first world city with gleaming skyscrapers lining the Yamuna River. Luxury cars race along the expressway between the downtown core and the affluent suburbs. And then there are the markets spread throughout the city. They sprawl over thousands of city blocks. The markets of Delhi offer food, fashion, animals, technology, handmade furniture, financial services. Basically, if you can't find it in the Delhi markets, it doesn't exist. But there's a dark side to this incredible cauldron of humanity. There's poverty and there's disease. There's crime and there are pests. Today, those pests are mostly mosquitoes that carry dengue fever or malaria, or rats that thrive on the city's garbage and spread an array of diseases. But 150 years ago, the pests that people worried most about were cobras. At the time, and I'm talking mid to late 1800s, India was ruled by the British. Queen Victoria held the title Empress of India, and it was not a ceremonial title at all. The British had very direct involvement in the day-to-day governance of the whole country. For example, on the issue of pest control, it was the British who made it a priority to eliminate cobras from the city of Delhi. I mean, getting rid of venomous snakes in one of the biggest cities seems like an important thing to do. And it was. The British rulers established an incentive program. They offered a cash reward for any dead cobra turned into the local police station. Once a week, they'd have these booths set up in front of the building, and the residents of Delhi would line up carrying baskets full of dead snakes, which they could turn in for money. And I mean, come on, it's pretty impressive what these people were doing. I mean, the cash reward is not huge. It's not like catching three or four snakes is going to pay their rent for the week. And besides that, catching a cobra? That is not easy to do. But in case you're wondering, here's how you do it. First, distract the cobra with a stick. Then, bend over and grab it by the tip of the tail and lift the tail up. They have a hard time whipping all the way around to strike you when you go for the tip of the tail. And then once they don't have the ground to push against because you're holding them off the ground, it's hard for them to get their heads all the way over there. Now, to be clear, I'm not telling you to actually try this, but if a hypothetical person who didn't hear it from me and therefore would not blame me or the makers of this podcast for any injuries they got while trying to do this, if they were gonna try to grab a cobra, they should probably grab the tip of the tail first. And it goes without saying, but if you do get bitten, you are in big trouble. Cobra venom blocks your nerves from talking to one another, and that eventually stops your nerves from telling your breathing muscles what to do. So if you get bitten by a cobra, you stop breathing. So don't get bit. Okay, once you got a hold of the tail, use your stick to gently press on the back of the snake's head, pinning it to the ground. Then drop the tail and grab the snake as close to the head as possible. Grab it on the sides, their throat's very delicate, and if you grab them on the underside, you could damage their trachea. This, of course, assumes you're trying to catch it alive and release it in the wild, but since the reward was for dead snakes, if we think back to what was happening in India in the 1800s, most people were just using a sharp knife to cut off the head at this point. 
Now, after about a month, the civic leaders were quite proud of themselves. For a reasonably small cost, they had mobilized an army of snake catchers. The city was well on its way to being free of the deadly pests. As the campaign went on, the organizers noticed a change in behavior. There were still farmers and common laborers showing up with their baskets holding a handful of snakes, but there were some new people too who soon became regulars. These new people were arriving with large hand-pushed carts holding dozens of dead snakes. One man arrived with over a hundred of them. Now, many of them were small, just a few feet long, but size doesn't matter in the reward system. Every cobra is worth the same bounty. And on the surface, that's a good policy because baby cobras are every bit as dangerous as the adults are. A newborn cobra can spread its hood and strike on the very same day it's hatched from the egg. So this man with a wagon load of dead baby snakes collected his thick wad of cash and left. Months went by. And the plan still seemed to be working. I mean, they didn't have detailed statistics about how many people got bitten before the campaign compared to after, but all you had to do was look at the giant pile of dead snakes turning up every week to know that the city was getting safer, right? Now, as for the people showing up with big piles of young snakes, well, maybe they just got really good at catching cobras. Eventually, the administrators figured out what was going on, and maybe you figured it out too. A handful of clever entrepreneurs had taken to farming cobras. They kept adult cobras in a pen, and when their eggs hatched into baby snakes, they killed the babies and wheeled them down to the police station to get paid. Now, when the government found out about this, they immediately put an end to the program. There was no warning, there was no grace period. Just one day, when the cobra sellers arrived, there was no one there to give them any cash. Now, the snake farmers were angry, and if there's one demographic you really don't want to upset, it's the people who have hundreds of venomous snakes at their disposal. Because they were so upset that they just got all their live snakes and let them go. As a result, the population of venomous snakes on the loose in Delhi skyrocketed. This story isn't unique to India. There are examples from all over the world where a policy intended to reduce something actually leads to it increasing. Rats in Hanoi, Vietnam. Feral pigs in Georgia. In the 1860s, around the same time as the British were trying to get all the snakes out of Delhi, the US Congress paid construction companies per mile of railroad track. And so to this day, you'll find routes in the Midwest that take these huge unnecessary bends just to add a few miles to the contract. In behavioral economics, this is often described as the cobra effect. We are calling it unintended consequences. I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life, an original podcast by Symar. I'm a science journalist. I hosted Daily Planet, a science news show on Discovery Channel, and now I mostly report on science news for a whole host of TV and radio stations across North America. And one thing I keep getting fascinated by is how the dilemmas and challenges facing scientists hundreds of years ago keep coming up again and again. I mean, the technology improves, but the way scientists think and the way they solve problems is remarkably consistent. And that's what this series is all about. Telling stories about the past so we can better understand the present. And maybe, just maybe, we'll get a glimpse into the future. 
The show is produced by Symar, a very modern medical research company tackling the diabetes epidemic. And if they can eradicate type 2 diabetes, well, that achievement may also have massive unintended consequences. So that's the theme for today. I doubt it'll be an increase in the number of cobras, but just in case, let's see where this leads. On a Sunday afternoon in February of 1941, Henry Mollison was visiting his grandparents. He was 15. In fact, it was his 15th birthday just a few days before, and that was the reason for the family get-together. Like most teenage boys, I'm sure there were a lot of things he would rather have been doing than sitting around chit-chatting with his extended family, but that's where he was, and so he made the best of it. He was always a polite kid, doing his best to make other people happy. The drive home was only 12 miles, but during that drive, something happened that changed his life and an entire field of medicine. Henry's father is driving, his mother's in the back seat. Henry, an only child, is sitting up front with his dad. About three miles from home, Henry suddenly stiffens. Every muscle in his body goes tense. His breathing becomes labored. Then he loses consciousness. He starts shaking, convulsing. Foam appears around his lips. His parents drive him straight to the hospital. Henry has had a grand mal seizure, an epileptic attack, and it wasn't his last. High school can be tough. High school with epilepsy in the 1940s is brutal. Before the seizures, Henry was a good student, he was interested in engineering, but after they began, he changed. He didn't join any clubs or sports teams because he didn't want to have a seizure in front of his classmates. And he was teased constantly. One time, he had a seizure in the hallway between classes. One student who saw him lying on the floor twitching and shaking said it looked like he was having a laughing fit. But it wasn't funny for Henry. During a seizure, he would sometimes bite his tongue or urinate. The day after that hallway seizure, the principal held an assembly for the entire school. He told Henry to stand up, and then he told every student about his epilepsy. His intention was to educate, but it had the unintended consequence of singling Henry out for more teasing. Over the next few years, life just kind of passed Henry by. His friends enlisted in the war, they went overseas, but Henry couldn't because of his epilepsy. He also couldn't drive a car. He continued living at home, and for this smart, friendly, helpful young man, the world just kept getting smaller. He was taking a lot of medication, and that helped reduce his seizures, but never to the point where he could live the life he wanted. So, in 1953, at the age of 27, Henry consented to a radical plan. A surgeon had proposed removing two small parts of his brain, and the hope was that by removing those two parts, the seizures would stop completely. This had only been tried a handful of times before, and only on patients that were dealing with severe psychiatric issues. Because those patients had so many complex behavioral issues, like schizophrenia in addition to their epilepsy, it was difficult or even impossible to measure the full impact of those earlier surgeries. So this was going to be both a treatment and also an experiment. Early morning, just after breakfast, they shave Henry's head. 
He walks into the operating room and he lies down on the table. Dr. William Scoville is conducting the surgery. He's been meeting with Henry for a few years. They chat briefly as a nurse administers a local anesthetic to Henry's scalp. See, the brain doesn't have any nerves, so Henry doesn't need to be put under. He'll be awake the whole time. They numb the skin and the muscle, and then they make this incision across his forehead. Dr. Scoville cuts two circular holes through the skull, each about the size of a silver dollar, and that exposes brain tissue. He starts on the right side. Very gently, he uses a small spatula to lift up the frontal lobe, then he inserts a small suction tool towards the underside of the brain. Very carefully, he works around the cluster of nerves behind the eye and reaches deep under the brain, finally reaching the hippocampus. He uses the suction tool to begin removing tissue. Once Dr. Scoville is confident he's removed the entire hippocampus, he moves to the left side and does the same thing over there. Now, all throughout this, the nurse is talking to Henry to make sure no other brain functions are impaired. She asks him to squeeze her hand. She checks that he still understands language and he still has motor control. He squeezes her hand. Everything's fine. Dr. Scoville stitches up the membrane covering the brain. And then he replaces the two discs of bone that he took out. And lastly, he closes up the skin on the forehead, leaving just a thin, straight scar. The only outward evidence of what's happened. The surgery was a success. Henry's seizures stopped completely. And more good news, his speech, his temperament, his motor control, none of that was affected. He lived to the ripe old age of 82. But there was one issue. One unintended consequence. His memory. Now let me be clear, Henry still had a memory. He could remember things from his childhood, his teenage years, all the way up to the surgery. But from that point forward, he couldn't create or consolidate any new memories. He lived in a short-term world where anything that happened more than a minute ago was lost. Do you know what you did yesterday? No, I don't. That's researcher Suzanne Corkin interviewing Henry in 1993. How about this morning? I don't even remember that. Could you tell me what you had for lunch today? I don't know. Tell you the truth. You could have a conversation with him, and his language and intellect appeared completely normal. But if you said goodbye and left the room and then came back 60 seconds later, he would have no idea who you were. Dr. Corkin worked with him for 30 years, and every single time she visited him, it was like they had never met. Because doctors knew exactly what had been removed, they could study what mental skills he had lost and ascribe those directly to certain parts of the brain. Now, this is different from when somebody shows a change in brain function after a stroke or a head injury. Those events are messy. They're hard to pin down. This was, well, it was surgical. Through this research, we began to understand what parts of the brain create memories and what parts store memories. All of this helped give rise to the development of cognitive neuropsychology. That's a branch of psychology that studies how the structure of the brain relates to specific functions of the brain. 
Now, there are all sorts of nuances in how Henry's memory worked after the surgery. For example, his working memory was fine. He could learn new skills even though he couldn't remember the act of learning them. This one amazed me. So there's this standard psychological test where the subject is asked to trace a shape on a piece of paper using a pencil, but there's a screen set up and a mirror, so you only see the shape and you see your hand in reverse. And the first time you try this, it's impossible. You get hopelessly confused, you move your hand the wrong way, it's a big mess. But after a couple of cracks at it, it's a skill that most people can learn quite quickly. Well, when they gave that test to Henry, he performed typically. He struggled at first, but then he mastered it on his third attempt. But here's the thing. They put the apparatus away, and then he went and got a coffee. And when he came back half an hour later, they showed him the setup, but of course, he didn't recognize it. He had no recollection of ever having tried the task, but then he picked up the pencil, and guess what? He did it perfectly on his first go. He even said to the investigator, hey, what do you know? I'm pretty good at this. When he was tested on his long-term memory, Henry exhibited something called retrograde amnesia. That means that his memory was better on the events that happened longer ago, and it deteriorated as events got closer to the day of his surgery. That's a phenomenon we see often in elderly people. You know, like your grandmother can remember all the details about what outfit you were wearing at your third birthday party, but she doesn't remember what she had for dinner last night. Except in this case, it's not the result of aging or general deterioration. We know exactly what part of the brain was responsible. What happened to Henry Mollison was tragic. He was looking for a cure to his seizures and it cost him his memory. But the unintended consequence was that he became one of the most studied, most cited, and most important subjects in the history of neuroscience. And maybe somewhere deep inside his much-studied brain, he did understand what that meant. How do you feel about answering so many questions and doing all the tests that we give you? Well, I don't mind. What is found out about me helps you to help others. That's, that's right. That's very true. And that, I figure that's more important in a way. The unintended consequence of the COBRA incentive program was more COBRAs, so the exact opposite of what they had intended. The unintended consequence of Henry's surgery was his loss of memory, something no one saw coming at all. But to take it a step further, the unintended consequence of Henry losing his memory was an incredible opportunity for medical research. Thousands, maybe millions of people have benefited from what we learned by studying Henry. So even if consequences are unintended, they're not always bad. I want to bring this back to Symar and the work they're doing on type 2 diabetes. It's a disease that we usually talk about in terms of glucose levels and insulin shots. But there are consequences that go way beyond blood sugar. When we talk about an illness like diabetes, it can impact an individual in terms of how much they have to pay for their medications, for their devices, and for their supplies, so that it actually shunts money away from things like rent and food and school supplies. That's Dr. Seema Nagpal. She's the Vice President for Science and Policy at Diabetes Canada. She has seen situations where a person has to choose one job over another based on what drugs are covered by a health plan. Or people being passed over for a promotion because their employer feels their diabetes is a distraction. The personal toll is significant and ever-present in a person's life. 
Diabetes is a disease that is 24-7. There's no vacations. You can't take a break and go out for dinner. You can't take a break and go down south. So it brings up the question, what would be the impact if we found a cure? The implications of a cure are seen both in terms of the personal benefits as well as the economic benefits. For children, it might mean the ability to go have a sleepover with a friend. For others, it may mean fully participating in school, being allowed to participate in sports teams and not being questioned so frequently when they go on a field trip. And others, it might mean seeking employment that is more suitable to their interest and their motivation and not being limited or being perceived to be limited by their illness. There are also major implications for the economy at a national scale, even a global scale. Diabetes costs employers thousands of dollars every year in terms of benefits related to medications, devices, supplies, absenteeism, short-term disability. So those things would be put back into the system. And then we know that costs to the healthcare system are astronomical. Diabetes is responsible for 30% of strokes, 40% of heart attacks, 50% of kidney failure causing dialysis, 70% of all non-traumatic limb amputations are a result of diabetes. Just to put a number on it, the International Diabetes Federation estimates $760 billion were spent last year on diabetes. And that's just medical expenses not all the other lifestyle costs Dr. Nagpal was referencing. See, this is why Symar's work is so important, to find a solution to the type 2 diabetes epidemic so sick people can get healthy, but also for those other changes that would ripple out from such a momentous change. So today was all about outcomes that were different from what was intended. Next episode... I want to share some stories about when the cause of something is not what you thought it was. Join us next week as we ask the question, is too much the new too little? I'm Dan Riskin. Thanks for joining me on Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. Oh, one last thing, and of course, it is about the cobras. Snake charmers have been around for centuries. There's even a reference to them in the Bible. They're in Africa, they're in the Middle East, basically anywhere you have snakes. But when I say snake charmer, you probably think of an Indian man sitting cross-legged in front of a basket. He's playing a tune on a flute of some kind, and a cobra is rising up out of the basket, swaying side to side. Well, that kind of snake charming had its golden age in India in the early 1900s. That's just a few years after all of those farmed snakes were released. Is it a coincidence? Maybe. Or perhaps an unintended consequence. <laughs>